Now I'd like to introduce our featured guest for this evening, Shannon Brownlee. Shannon Brownlee is Acting Director of the New America Health Policy Program. A nationally known writer and essayist, she is best known for her groundbreaking work on avoidable healthcare, the patchy quality of medical evidence, and the implications for healthcare policy. Her book, Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer, was named the best economics book of 2007 by New York Times economics correspondent David Leonhardt. Brownlee holds a master's degree in marine science from the University of California, Santa Cruz. She serves as an instructor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and a Woodrow Wilson visiting scholar. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Shannon Brownlee. Thanks very much, and I'm so pleased to see all of you. I have a confession. I am a reformed hope pusher. Um, I spent 10 years at US News and World Report. Uh, I don't know if it's even being published anymore in paper form, but it was at the time one of the three major news magazines in this country, along with Time and Newsweek. And I was one of the, the lead medical writers there, and I wrote a lot of cover stories about healthcare and about the great promise of healthcare and about everything that was new was wonderful in healthcare. And then I came upon a story that radicalized me, or it was the beginning of radicalization, and it was about the PSA test. Now, I suspect the men in this room who were over 50 know what a PSA test is, but for everybody else, a PSA test is a prostate-specific antigen test. It's a simple blood test, and it measures a protein in the blood that is put out by the prostate gland, and it's used to screen for prostate cancer. And screening simply means mammography is screening, for example, Screening simply means you don't have any, any um, uh, symptoms yet and, you're look, and the physician is looking for signs, early signs that you have the disease so that you can be treated early. So what was interesting about this story, there are a number of things that were interesting about the story as I reported it. And, and one of them was that there wasn't any evidence that giving men a PSA test actually reduced their risk of dying prematurely. So this test was being used by more and more physicians, and yet the evidence for it was very poor. The other thing that was really important about it was that the treatment for prostate cancer, um, which is a surg mostly surgical removal of the prostate, but also radiation, um, left a lot of men with really serious side effects. Prince, more than half of men who have a radical prostatectomy ended up um, incontinent or impotent or both long-term. These are serious side effects. And it seemed kind of amazing that we were doing something to men that had the potential for great harm without a whole lot of evidence that there was really great benefit. So, but three aspects of this story really stuck with me for a long time. Number one, my editor ripped it to shreds. Now, I was, this, I was their lead medical writer, and he basically said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you that there isn't good evidence, and I don't believe you that we, don't, that, that, that we would be doing this, that physicians would be doing this without good evidence um, for benefit. Number two, one third of the men who got the test were never told they were going to be given the test. One third, their doctor simply ran the test along with cholesterol and whatever else and never told the man. The first thing the man knew was he was getting a call from his doctor saying your PSA is high. And deciding whether or not you want a PSA test is a kind of an important decision. Number three, 
Two-thirds of men who were treated for prostate cancer felt that they were never fully informed about the downsides of treatment and the fact that they might not have to be treated. So a huge number of men were getting treated for a cancer that didn't even need to be treated. And they didn't really know what the downsides were. So it's this piece of it, how we fail to clue patients in, that I want to talk about today. And I want to suggest a new way. I want to let you know about a quiet revolution that's happening in medicine, a revolution that you probably haven't heard of. Now, if you're lucky, your physician is already doing this. Um, but if not, you can help make this revolution really start to accelerate and start to happen. So, so I'm going to ask in a second how many people have had an elective procedure, but let me define what an elective procedure is first. An elective procedure is one that's done where there are multiple ways you can treat the condition. So if you have arthritis pain you, in your knee, you can possibly have your knee replaced. That's a kind of a big radical uh, way to treat it. You can take pain medication. You can lose weight. You can just ignore the pain because you have all kinds of other aches and pains as well. I mean, there are any number of ways that you can treat that. Um, if you have chest pain from, uh, you have angina, chest pain from heart disease, you can uh, take medication, you can stop smoking, you can get up off the couch, you can change your diet, you can have bypass surgery, or you can have an angioplasty or a stent. Those are some of the elective possibilities. So PSA test is an elective test. Mammography is an elective test. Bypass surgery is an elective surgery. Angioplasty and stents are elective. Knee replacement, carotid and darterectomy, we can talk a little bit about that. So. And this is a very significant part of what we spend money on in this country in, in terms of healthcare. It's about 25% of the $2.7 trillion we spent last year. So it's a, it's a big hunk of change on elective procedures. So how many people have had an elective surgery? Pretty significant number. Significant number of people. So when you get that elective procedure, you're supposed to give something called informed consent. It's a legal document. It's supposed to lay out what the risks are, what the possible benefits are, what the procedure actually is. And in signing it, you say, I understand and I consent to have this done. Now, in the history of medicine, informed consent is a relatively new thing. Um, if you go back to the fifth century, to the time of Hippocrates, he introduced this radical notion, then radical notion, that disease was caused by environmental factors rather than being punishment for bad behavior, divine punishment for bad behavior. And what that meant is that treatment could actually be something physical rather than spiritual. If it was caused by something physical, you could treat it. Now, today, doctors still take the Hippocratic Oath. And part of that oath is the saying, first do no harm, primum no no care, I think, care, no non care. First do no harm. But there's another legacy of Hippocrates that we still have today, that, and that was really very much a part of medical practice until very recently, and that was don't let the patient know what's going on. So it was part of the magic of medicine, part of the way that it actually worked or actually didn't work because most of it was magic back then, but belief in the physician's power. Physicians had enormous autonomy and enormous authority. It was very, very paternalistic. Physicians could withhold treatment and not tell the patient. They could not tell the patient what the diagnosis was. In fact, in 1968, when my grandfather died, he died without ever knowing that he had, had, that he had a, a, a terminal brain tumor. 
So this paternalism has been very much part of medicine for, you know, how many, how many hundreds and hundreds of years. It was reinforced in the medieval times by the notion that the doctor's authority was vested by God, was bestowed by God. And even the Enlightenment did very little to dislodge this faith in the physician's superior knowledge, despite the fact that a lot of what they believed was rubbish, but, and, and also belief in his beneficence. This is the idea that the doctor always makes decisions that are in the patient's best interests. Now, back then, doctors probably meant well, but a lot of what they did caused harm. In fact, there's some thinking that there was a mo the moment when medicine really started to change was not until the 20th century when your chances of being helped were greater than your chances of being harmed. And penicillin had a lot to do with that. So the 20th century saw this other shift. This, there was the shift to medicine being more helpful than harmful, and it also saw a shift in the, in the relationship between the doctor and the patient. And this notion of informed consent was part of that. And, it, and informed consent came out of a series of, of um, scandals where patients alleged that the physician had in effect battered them by doing something that they didn't give consent to. And a Supreme Court Justice, Benjamin Cardozo, Agreed, he said, every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done to his own body. So this idea of informed consent goes back to 1917, and it's been refined a lot, but it really goes back to this idea that Cardozo said, an adult of sound mind has the right to choose what happens to their body. So today, when you undergo a surgical procedure, you sign that informed consent document. But here's the thing, we know that in many, many cases, patients don't actually understand the first thing about what's happening to them. They sign the document, but they don't actually understand. And we know they are consenting to something that was recommended by their physician, but the patient wasn't really engaged in the decision. Now sometimes patients, this is because of patients saying, oh, what would you do, doctor, if you were me? And that's a perfectly legitimate thing for a patient to say, because the doctor does have superior knowledge. But patients often delegate decisions that by rights really should be their decisions because what happens to them should be based on what they value, what's important to them, what they fear and what they hope for. So, and even if you read an informed consent document very, very carefully, chances are very good you won't understand a word because they're not really meant to inform, they're really meant, they're really legal documents. The other thing is, is that we know that different doctors have different opinions about the right thing to do for a given patient. So if you have chest pain from angina, some cardiologists are going to say, here's the medications you need to take, here's why you need to take them, um, I want you to stop smoking, you need to do all these medical things. We need to try those things first, and that is the, probably the right thing to do. But some cardiologists will instantly say, let's go to an angioplasty. You're having chest pain, let's go to bypass surgery. So different physicians have different opinions about the right way to treat the same patient. If you have a hernia and you have no symptoms, some doctors will say, we need to repair it immediately because this bad thing can happen called strangulation. And we need to repair, we need to do the surgery now while you're young and healthy rather than waiting until you're old and then you have symptoms. Others will say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't, we are not, we, I don't recommend surgery for a non-symptomatic hernia. If it becomes symptomatic, then we'll worry about it. 
we have time. So if you have knee pain from arthritis, some orthopedists will recommend knee replacement right away, and others will say, well, let's try some drugs, let's try losing weight. You know, a knee only really lasts a decade if you're active, and you don't want to have to undergo this surgery again if you can avoid it. So it turns out when it comes to elective procedures and elective tests, like the PSA test, who you see is what you get. So let me give you a, a specific example, tonsillectomy. Um, I bet more than half of the people in this room over the age of 45 have had their tonsils out. I certainly had mine out, my two brothers had theirs out. Today, very few children have their tonsils out. And what's interesting is back then there wasn't very much good science behind whether or not you needed your tonsils out. There wasn't really any reasonable evidence to say that it actually benefited, that it reduced the risk of getting strep throat. Um, and there wasn't even a really good, hard rule about whose tonsils needed to come out. Some doctors looked in your throat and saw a little bit of swelling and set out with the tonsils. Others said, if, unless you've been having strep throat repeatedly for the last six months, your tonsils stay in. And still others said there's no reason to take your tonsils out. So back when we were kids, getting your tonsils out had everything to do with which doctors you saw and where you lived where you lived was also important. And one of the first physicians, one of the first researchers to notice this is a guy named Jack Wenberg, who's at the Dartmouth Atlas. Um, has anybody heard of the Dartmouth Atlas? Ah, this is a pretty, pretty savvy crowd. So Jack was doing research in Vermont, and he lived in Vermont, um, and he had four kids, and his kids were in the Waterbury School District. And he noticed something interesting, that children who were in one school district 20% of them had their tonsils out by the time they were 15. And in another school district, just a few miles down the road, like six miles down the road, 60% of them had their tonsils out. This was not due to differences in the children in these two school districts. It had everything to do with the physicians practicing in the two school districts. Now this was first seen in England by a guy named J. Allison Glover in the 1930s, who was a, was a, a, a public health physician and he found a four-fold difference between districts in England in, in the rates of tonsillectomy. And in the US, the Public Health Service in New York did a really interesting experiment. They didn't know it was an experiment at the time, but they were very worried that children who needed to have their tonsils out weren't getting a chance to have them removed. So what they did is they took 1,000 school children, randomly picked 1,000 school children, and they had a physician look at their, in, their, in their throats and say whether or not they needed their tonsils out. Now, it turned out that 65% of them already had their tonsils out, but the doctor looked at the rest and said 40% needed their tonsils out. But the public health service was still worried that not all children were getting access to this, so they took those kids, the ones that, that hadn't had their tonsils taken out the first go-around, and showed them to another doctor. And that doctor said 40% of those kids needed their tonsils out. Well, the, school, the, the public health service still wasn't satisfied, and they took those kids and showed them to another doctor, and that doctor said 40% needed their, their tonsils out. So there was this expectation by the physicians that the sort of average number of tonsils that needed to come out was about 40%, and they made the decision on that basis. It was like, you know, the, there was this, this, the seeing was believing. So out of the 1,000 kids, only 65 at the end still had their tonsils at the end of this whole thing, which really gives new meaning to the phrase, no child left behind. <laughs> but we wouldn't do that now, would we? Because modern medicine is scientific. 
<laughs> We're better at diagnosing disease. We have CT scanners and ultrasound. We have all kinds of new tests. We have blood tests for diseases people didn't even know about back then. We like to think our doctors make decisions on the basis of really sound science. But if that were so, why is it that we still see enormous variation in surgical procedures, in elective surgical procedures, in different parts of the country, and in fact within the state of California? Huge, huge variation. Where you live still determines what you get. So I'll give you a few examples of actual surgeries. Carotid endarterectomy. This is a, a surgery that is intended to reduce your risk of having a stroke. It's, it's, you open up the carotid arteries in the, in the neck, you remove plaque from the neck, this, this gunky stuff that tends to break free and go up into the brain and cause a stroke. And um, your chances of getting a carotid endarterectomy, what are they? If you live in Pomona, about one person in a thousand gets a carotid endarterectomy. If you live in Simi Valley, nearly five people in a thousand get a carotid endarterectomy. That's a six, eight-fold variation. If you live in Casper, Wyoming, a 10 out of a thousand get a carotid endarterectomy. That's 15-fold compared to Pomona. And this does not look like, and this, by the way, this is all Medicare data. This is all based on patients who have Medicare, comes from Dartmouth. Um, so everybody's insured and everybody's over 65. So back surgery. If you live in San Francisco, about two out of every thousand people get back surgery in San Francisco. In Ventura, eight out of every thousand. If you have knee pain, knee replacement, in Gar is it Gardena or Gardena? Gardena. You live in Gardena, about two people out of a thousand. Same for Monterey Park, San Gabriel, Linwood get knee replacement. If you live in Red Bluff, it's 12, almost 13 out of a thousand. Healdsburg, Mount Shasta, and Rancho Mirage, 13 out of a thousand. That's a six-fold difference. Prostatectomy, our good old friend. Chula Vista, less than one man in a thousand in the Medicare population gets a prostatectomy. Templeton, near San Luis Obispo, four and a half men out of a thousand. In fact, San Luis is kind of the, uh, don't bend over guys in San Luis. <laughs> Mastectomy. Mastectomy in San Francisco, less than one woman in a thousand of Medicare age gets a mastectomy. In Bakersfield, it's one and a half. And in Fort Bragg, near Napa, it's almost four. So you're much more likely to have mastectomy in Fort Bragg than in San Francisco. And finally, let's do the, the ones that, that often pop up in the news, which is bypass surgery and stents and angioplasty. So if you live in Novato, two out of 1,000 get bypass surgery. If you live in Clear Lake, 10 out of 1,000. And if you live in McAllen, Texas, which was the subject of a piece in The New Yorker, it's about nine out of 1,000. That's a five-fold difference. That's a pretty big difference in the rates of bypass surgery. Rates of angioplasty are lowest in Honolulu, Benning, my hometown, Benning and San, uh, near San Bernardino, 3.6 per thousand. In Clear Lake, California, 41 per thousand. Tenfold difference. That's a really big difference. In Elyria, Ohio, it's 37 per thousand. So what does this really mean for you as patients? 
In some locations, a very low rate may mean that people are not getting care that could help them. So for knee surgery, for example, people in Los Angeles neighborhoods like Linwood and San Gabriel and Gardena, Gardena may not be getting a surgery that can improve the quality of their lives. This is not a problem of insurance. This is, this is Medicare recipients. And, and it's also not a problem of a shortage of physicians because Los Angeles has more orthopedists than probably any place else on earth per capita. So what's going on? Well, it may be the orthopedists are busy doing other things like back surgery and hand surgery. It's not really clear. But there are differences of opinions about the rate at which, uh, that the, there are differences of opinions among physicians about when you recommend a particular procedure. But the opposite is true in places where rates are very high. There's a good chance that patients are getting procedures they don't need and that they probably wouldn't want if they really understood what was at stake. Does anybody remember the story of Redding, California? It's about a decade old now. And Redding, California, ah, there's one person who remembers. So Redding is, is up near Mount Shasta. And Redding at one point was the bypass and um, angioplasty capital of the United States. It was a hot spot. It was incredible. And most of it was being done at one medical center, Reading Medical Center, which was owned by a for-profit chain, the Tenet, um, Tenet Healthcare. And most of those procedures were being done by two physicians, a physician named Chai Hyun Moon and another physician, the, the one who was doing the bypass, bypass surgeries, was Fidel Reali Vasquez. Moon performed as many as a dozen cardiac catheterizations. These are these procedures for angioplasty and stents. He did as many as a dozen in a single day. That's four times what most doctors in Northern California were doing. In one year, he performed 800 procedures. And between June 2001 and 2002, he billed Medicare for $4 million. At its peak, the Reading Medical Center performed nearly 800 open heart surgeries per year. Many of them were done by Fidel Reale Vasquez. And you can bet that the medical center worshiped these two guys because they were bringing in some of the most profitable patients that a hospital can have. But the whole thing began to unravel when a primary care doctor named Patrick Campbell had a patient named Mary Rosberg who came to him and said she was having chest pains. So Patrick gave his patient um, a stress test and it was kind of inconclusive, and so he decided to send her to the cardiologist. And he sent her to Moon, and the next thing he knows, she's having a catheterization, Moon is recommending bypass, and that she get a valve replacement. But he got a call from another surgeon from Reading Medical Center who said she doesn't need any of those things. But Patrick Campbell was a primary care doctor, and he didn't, he didn't feel confident enough to challenge Moon, and so he said, go ahead to Mary. She went ahead and had all the surgery, and a few weeks later, she had chest pains. She was medevaced back to the hospital, and she was having clots on her valve, and she died. And Campbell wondered if maybe that surgeon who called him had been right, and if maybe she'd gotten a procedure she didn't need. But he didn't think anything of it until another patient came along, and he sent the patient to Dr. Moon, and once again, Dr. Moon advised the most aggressive treatment. And it happened multiple times, and that's when Patrick Campbell started gathering, gathering patient records. It took him seven years, but eventually the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice seized records from Reading. It turns out that in 27 years, Moon had catheterized 35,000 patients, which is a huge number for one physician. 
And outside specialists who looked at those records said that about a, a quarter to half the patients had been inappropriate patients. In other words, they had been subjected to treatments that probably w had very little chance of benefiting them. At least 167 patients died from the treatment. Either they'd been too weak to withstand the surgery or the doctors had been negligent or there'd been a kind of an, some kind of an error. At one point, Moon left a 67-year-old man who had suffered a massive stroke during the procedure. He left him on the table in, in the care of a nurse and went back to his office. He called a neurologist and he left, and the man died. So today, Reading is no longer a hotspot, as you can imagine. Reading's, Reading's uh, cardiac procedure, cardiac unit, had to be shut down. Now it's another town in, in Northern California. It's Clear Lake seems to be the hotspot. But around the country, we do about 975,000 angioplasties and stents a year, almost a million, that are elective. We do some for people who are having a heart attack. It's very clearly indicated for those people. The rest of them are elective. And 146 of those are clearly unnecessary. Another 205,000 are a little bit questionable, and about 3,000 people die each year from getting a procedure that they didn't need that was unnecessary. Now, it's really a bummer to die or be hurt by a procedure that might have helped you, but I think it's even worse to be harmed by something that you really didn't need. And this has consequences for the rest of us, because we're talking about $17 billion a year on unnecessary procedures for this one area of medicine. But the most important piece of it is the effect on patients. The most important piece. So um, earlier this year, I met a woman named Marilda, who is a Brazilian immigrant. She lives in upstate New York. And she told me the story of why she has heart disease. So Marilda was 40 years old. Uh, her oldest son was going to college. She was studying for her nurse's aides exam. And her husband was beating her. So she was under a lot of stress, and she was having terrible, terrible shortness of breath, and her heart was racing. So she shows up at the emergency room, and they do a series of tests, and she's absolutely fine, and they send her home. She goes to her primary care doctor and says, I'm under a lot of stress, and I'm having these symptoms, and they send her to the cardiologist. And the cardiologist runs a series of tests, and she's absolutely fine, and um, she keeps having the symptoms. So she ends up in the emergency room one more time, and the cardiologist says, just to be sure, let's do a catheterization. You're fine, you don't have heart disease, but just to be sure, let's do one. So she's on the table, and she's actually looking at the screen, and she can see that her arteries are clear. They're clear, clean as a whistle. And uh, as the physician is pulling the catheter out, he perforates her artery. She said, she said to me, you know, everybody says when you die, you see a light. It's really dark when you die. And then when you come back to life, then you see light. <laughs> she died and came back. She had to be defibrillated nine times. And now she really does have heart disease. She can't walk upstairs. She can't mop her floor. She can't work. She can't walk her dog. She takes 13 different medications. Prozac is one of them, as, uh, not surprisingly. So... It might sound like I'm beating up on cardiologists and I really don't mean to do it because I could tell you stories about a patient I know who was given a PSA test and ended it without his knowledge and then ended up having a biopsy and then died of, of a terrible infection. Or I could tell you about the woman who died from treatment for very early stage breast cancer, so early that it really shouldn't even be called breast cancer.
most patients come out okay. This is the good thing. Most of us come out okay. But if you are that one in 10,000 who was harmed in the course of getting a treatment that you didn't need or you didn't understand or you wouldn't have wanted if you had understood, then that one in 10,000 in risk starts to become very real. Patients are not being adequately informed and when they are informed, they often make different choices. We know that patients are undergoing serious procedures. Marilda is just one example of somebody who really did not understand the risk. In fact, she said to me later, um, you know, I now get a second opinion for everything. I really did not understand that where was, there was any risk at all. I was stressed. I was having panic attacks. And she says, I'm the driver, but my doctors can be the GPS. But I need to be the driver. So we know that when patients do have access to better information, when they're better informed, when they really understand the pros and cons, they make different choices. And that suggests that we really need a new way of helping patients understand what's happening and helping patients make decisions. We need a new ethical standard that replaces the doctrine of informed consent. And I know if there are any physicians in the audience, that sounds pretty radical, and it is. But we need a standard of informed patient choice. And rather than having doctors who make decisions for us, we need doctors who make decisions with us, who share decisions. Now this may sound so simple-minded and so self-evident and so obvious, but it's really a radical notion in medicine. The doctrine of shared decision-making represents a revolutionary idea, just as the notion of informed consent represented a revolutionary change from the old paternalistic Hippocratic way of doing things. So moving from informed consent to shared decision-making represents the democratization of the doctor-patient relationship. And this is revolutionary, and the revolution is already happening. I don't know if the revolution will be televised for those of you from, from a bygone era. So doctors all over the country have already been starting to, do, to implement shared decision-making. Now, it's not a majority um, who have embraced it, not even close, but many have come to believe that we need this new way of informing patients and a new way of helping them make decisions. So here's what you can do to be part of this revolution and to get the care that you need and no more and the care that you want and no less. So the first thing is ask your doctor for a patient decision aid. A patient decision aid is not like a nurse, it's nurse's aid, it's not a person. It's a brochure, it's a web-based program, it's a video that helps you understand what your options are. Now your doctor could do that. Your orthopedist can explain what knee replacement is. Your vascular surgeon can explain what carotid and diorectomy is. But it turns out that our doctors are often not very good at explaining things in ways that we can really understand. Um, I had that, that really illustrated to me recently when I accompanied my mother to the cardiologist. I'm not beating up on cardiologists. The electrophysiologist. And the electrophysiologist ripped through all these technical terms. And my mom just sat there going like this, nodding her head the whole time. I didn't understand what this woman was saying. And when she left the room, I turned to my mother and said, did you get any of that? And she goes, not a word. <laughs> So physicians are not trained to actually explain things in ways that patients can understand, and they also have their own opinion about what's right. And their, your doctor's opinion about what's right might not be what's best for you. 
So for bypass surgery, for example, bypass surgery, if you're a particular kind of candidate, can reduce your risk of having a heart attack and dying by a little bit. But it also increases your risk that you'll have emotional side effects, that you may in fact have memory problems. And so you get to choose, you know, live a few months longer, forget your grandchildren's names. You need to make the decision about which one of those you really value. And some people are going to say, those few extra possible months, maybe even a couple of years, are worth it to me. And other people are going to say, no, I've lived a good life. I want to have good quality of life for the time I have left. That's the patient's values that have to be taken into account. Now, unfortunately, most physicians don't have decision aids. So you can ask your insurer. You can prod your insurer and say, I want a decision aid. But if nobody has an aid for you, you need to ask your doctor a series of questions. So you're being presented with the possibility of having hernia repair or knee replacement. Three crucial questions. One, what are my options? Two, is doing nothing one of my options? And three, what are the risks associated with each of, of, of the options and what are the possible benefits? So if you have back pain, for example, and most of us have, are going to suffer it at some point in our lives, um, you have a number of options. If you have persistent back pain, let's say you've been diagnosed with a herniated disc. First, you need to know that lots of people who have herniated discs don't suffer pain. So fixing your disc is not necessarily going to get rid of your pain because it might not be the cause of your pain. Number two, you need to know that surgery compared with, say, massage or pain-killing drugs or just the tincture of time um, isn't really that much better after a year. Surgery may bring relief faster, but after a year, people who get surgery, people who don't get surgery are usually at the same place. Three, surgery might leave you in worse shape with more pain, and four, surgery entails risk. So if you ask your physician about what the possible risks are and your physician dismisses the risks and says, don't worry about it, that's not going to happen, you might need to talk to another doctor because you need to know what the risks are. And if you don't have access to a decision aid, you probably do want a second opinion from someone. And there are second opinion services at places like the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic. You need to get outside of your area to get your second opinion. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't trust your doctor? No, I'm saying trust but verify. <laughs> Be knowledgeable, understand. And am I saying that all doctors are going to welcome your questions? Well, no. Sad to say, they're not all going to welcome your questions. In fact, a friend of mine who's a physician's uh, assistant was just fired by her doctor because she doesn't get mammograms. And she knows the literature extremely well. She knows the evidence extremely well. And this is her decision. And her doctor said, if you're not going to do what I tell you to do, you can't be my patient. So not all doctors are going are to welcome you questioning them. But but there are lots of doctors who will. There are lots of doctors who would love to have a patient who tries to be informed and wants to be engaged and wants to be involved. And more and more doctors are embracing this idea of shared decision-making. And in fact, more and, doctor, more and more doctors are going to do so in the future because shared decision-making is written into the Affordable Care Act, the health reform law of 2010. So when you are facing an elective decision, ask questions. Ask for a decision aid. Ask for a doctor who will share the decision. And make sure that you get the care that you need and no less, and the care that you want and no more. Thank you.
Oh, hi, my name is uh, Stephen. You mentioned that uh, the total unnecessary cost of uh, heart procedures in the U.S. per year was $17 billion. Is there reliable data on what the cost is throughout the entire medical system for all procedures? These elective procedures account for only 25% of the total. Um, but the, the lion's share of what we spend money on is something called discretionary care, which is a little bit of a different problem. But if you look at the whole ball of wax, the estimate is that between a quarter and a third of what we spend money on is unnecessary. So if we're spending $2.7 trillion, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, $700 billion. And is there a study or somewhere we can go to? Yes, read? there are multiple studies. The Dartmouth Atlas is one of the sources for these data. The Institute of Medicine just came out with a report. They're all coming out from different, different ways of getting at the same problem, and they're all coming to the same conclusion, that it's about 25 to 30%. Uh, hi, my name is Eileen. Thanks so hi. much. This is, this is a spectacular uh, conversation for us to have. Uh, one thing that's of grave concern to me, and you know, it was Atul Gawande in that article in the New Yorker that raised it to me, um, is the the doctors' roles in the escalating costs of medical care. I always blamed the pharmaceutical companies and the insurers, and now I blame the doctors since I myself have encountered doctors who own the facilities and therefore are constantly scheduling you into their facilities. So my question is um, on the subject of mammography in particular, which is now so controversial, where do you stand? Uh, uh, is, it, is it because doctors were making so much money get, doing mammograms, doing breast surgery? How does mammography fit into this conversation? So there's kind of two questions here. One is, is the question of greed. And I, I hate to say that because because, in fact, I think most physicians go into medical school because they want to help patients. But we, if we have a system that encourages physicians to give more care rather than better care, who do we have to blame? We have to blame ourselves because of the way we pay. Now, we, meaning you know, insurance companies and Medicare, but we pay, we pay physicians and hospitals to do more, not to do better. We pay fee-for-service. It is a dumb way to pay. We're stuck in this way of paying. Nobody can quite figure out how to pay differently, but we incentivize people to give us more care, and what do we get? More care. So that's part of what's going on, and it's extremely difficult for physicians to face this because their perception of their own beneficence and their own goodness is, is deeply threatened by the idea that might, they might be doing things just for the money. But it's clear, hospitals are clearly doing a lot of things for the money. There's a saying, it's called no margin, no mission. And if they build the wrong facilities. Right, so then there's this, this self-fulfilling piece of it, is if you own the CT scanner, you have a huge incentive to, to uh, prescribe a CT scan. The other question about mammography is a very difficult one, and that's why I think it's really that one of that and PSA testing are sort of the quintessential elective tests that it really needs to be the patient who is informed deciding what they want to do. And it's very hard for patients to, to go against the prevailing wisdom. So I'm going to tell you something that if I tell physicians this or if I tell other women this, they pounce on me and you're not allowed to pounce on me because there's too many of you. I don't do mammograms. 
I've done a couple of mammogram screening mammograms. I might do a couple of more in my life, but I do not get mammograms every year. And the reason is, is because I've looked at the data and I, and I personally am more scared of being harmed by getting treatment for, some, for, for a cancer that doesn't need to be treated, which is a lot of them, than I am scared of dying of breast cancer. Now, talk to me in 10 years when I'm dying of breast cancer, maybe I'll regret this, but I'm willing to accept that risk. But that's not the right answer for everybody. For a woman who says, I'm really scared of breast cancer and I need to get screened, that's a perfectly acceptable decision. Yes, and the fundamental, and, and then we should probably move on to other questions, but the fundamental problem is no screening test is very good. Even after you've had the biopsy, it's very hard to predict which cancers. Like, really aggressive ones, you know you're toast. The really benign ones, you know you didn't really need to, you didn't really need to treat it. But it's very hard not to treat once you've been diagnosed. But most of them fall in this squishy middle, and it's really hard to know the difference between one that's dangerous and one that isn't. And that's true of most of the cancers we screen for. Hi, I'm uh, Kathy Sullivan, and I wanted to um, comment about a lot of your, your discussion is very physician-focused. And I'm a physical therapist, and I um, in, teach in a health professional school. And what I noticed, and I, I think you're right on, is that we put so much value in physician-related services that we don't take advantage of other services like preventive early intervention care, provided by dentists or nurse practitioners or physical therapists that would save a lot of money. And, and just one thing to point out is what's the state of dental health right now in the country. Dentistry actually has proven that preventive dental care, brushing your teeth, getting your teeth cleaned twice a year, can, can save you know, lots of health conditions. And the children in Los Angeles, 70% of them have untreated caries. And it's the number one reason they don't go to schools because of headache from cavities. So that, that's, that's crazy. Just, that's crazy. Yeah, so I'm, I guess my point is about, can you comment on how do we make preventive medicine valued? It's very clear that we don't, we don't value things on the basis of their ability to produce greater health. Like, the sing, what is the single most important thing you can do to reduce your risk of a heart attack? Stop smoking. Stop smoking. Yet, we pour gigantic amounts of money into angioplasty and stents, and we don't, we don't even train physicians on how to counsel their patients to stop smoking. And when the, the American Heart Association came out with this 900-page book guide to treating, treating heart disease, two paragraphs were devoted to diet. So we have overvalued intervention and undervalued really pretty simple stuff that your grandmother could have told you because we don't pay for it. The second uh, example you used about the woman whose husband beat her, she saw two doctors, three doctors, ended up with a punctured valve. Did any of those doctors take it under their, uh, were they interested enough to say, leave the husband? Con address the complete picture of the family yeah. instead of just doing surgery. This is a very complicated case. And, um, and this woman actually, it was well known in the primary care practice that she had an abusive husband and it was and there had been efforts to try to get her to leave her husband but that's easier said than done when you're a brazilian immigrant with no education and three children and so um 
Clearly, she needed a lot of help in her life. And stress was a pretty good reason for why she might be having what appeared to be panic attacks. Hi, I'm Nadine Antoncala, and I guess I feel lucky uh, living in Los Angeles and uh, in that I've really been trained by my doctors to ask the right questions, to get second opinions, and um, you know, to really think about any recommendations that they make very carefully. And I'm actually more concerned about some other approaches, and I wonder if you've had any experience in this. Um, some people I know belong to HMOs, and even though they have Medicare attached to their HMOs, and their doctors sometimes avoid making suggestions um, for treatment or colonoscopies and various procedures, um, be, perhaps in my opinion, because of the expense to their HMO. To so, their so it depends on which HMO you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about Kaiser, uh -huh, there's am. very clear evidence that Kaiser gives some of the best care in the country. So patients have this idea about HMOs that they're all about saving money. But in fact, if you look at real hard evidence, patients who go to Kaiser get better care. And I know that's really hard to, hard to believe because we have this idea that HMOs are all about denying you care so that they can save money. But in fact, Kaiser doctors follow evidence better than almost anybody except maybe the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic. Kaiser doctors, so if you have diabetes, for example, your chances of having a heart attack are... 40% lower than if you go to a physician out in the community, if you go to a Kaiser, if you go to a Kaiser, if you're a Kaiser member. So, so I think that there's a certain amount of urban legend in this idea that HMOs are all about denying us needed care. Um, at, by the same token, you know, I don't know if Kaiser's doing shared decision making very well either. And, and if you're a Kaiser member, you ought to be saying, hey, can I have a decision aid? Hey, can I have a decision aid? Because eventually, when you keep asking, um, you, you're, that's, you know, patient demand has an effect. Hi, my name is Al, and um, healthcare spending is off the charts in this country, off the charts compared to the rest of the world. And you, the issues you brought up are clearly part of it. Um, is there any country that has, is doing this right? Uh, shared decision making, no. It's, it's all over the world. It's starting, it's, it's a nascent movement all over the world. And um, Canada has centers where they're trying to get shared decision-making going. The UK has centers where they're trying to get it going. Germany, Denmark, um, there are countries that are, are sort of in the same stage we are. Uh, but in terms of spending, which is another piece of your question, other countries spend a lot less than we do per capita. Um, but the scary thing is, is that their rate of increase is about the same as ours is. So nobody's quite gotten figured, nobody's quite figured out how you control the rate of increase in healthcare spending. Even though they're starting out at a lower rate and we're starting out at a higher rate, we're gonna go broke first, basically. Um, everybody's in having, struggling with a lot of the same problems. And I don't mean to mislead you that elective procedures are where the big money is. They are not. They are not where the big savings are. The big savings are in the way we treat people as they age and die. And unfortunately, living in Los Angeles, you may have doctors who, who are interested in helping you ask the right questions, but you also are at far more risk of dying in the ICU than almost anywhere else in the country. You are at far more risk of seeing 
having dozens of physician visits in the last year of your life in LA compared to other parts of the country. By, by, by the way, I do, have, I do have Kaiser, so thank you very much. Um, on the other hand, isn't Kaiser different in the sense that they're more of a nonprofit than other uh, healthcare systems? Well, they're a nonprofit. They're an integrated system in the sense that the insurance company and the providers are, the, are part of the same company. But there is, they try to keep a firewall between them so that the physicians make decisions within the budget that they have. Um, the UK does it that way as well. The, the, um, the National Health Service, they basically have a budget and they make decisions within that budget. But um, this, this issue of how we, we control spending why is it that at Los Angeles you have a greater chance of dying in the ICU, you have a greater chance of dying on a ventilator, you know, having a ventilator at some point near around the end of life? It's the, the reason is this because you have more hospital beds than any place else in the country except Boston. And you have more ICU beds, you have more physicians. And its supply ends up driving what happens. Your physician ends up making a lot of decisions about, for example, whether or not to hospitalize you. When you come in, when the nursing home says, you know, you're having trouble breathing and the hospital admits you, um, those decisions are based in part on the capacity of the hospital around the physician. And so the building spree that we've been on in this country in terms of increasing supply of beds has helped fuel the amount of money that we spend and the way we treat people in the last few years of their lives. I'm Larry Hawley. I have uh, two questions. Well, one question. What do you do about the uh, fraud and greed as, as appeared in uh, the Reading case? And the other I'd call inbreeding where all the doctors in the area play golf together and they never get any outside opinions from uh, doctors outside the area. Practice patterns develop in local places. And so a lot of the, there's sort of group think that happens. So this is the way you treat patients in a particular area. So if you want to get a second opinion, you almost have to go outside of your community. It is a good idea to get that sort of long distance second opinion if you possibly can. Um, but the, the fraud piece of it is, fraud is a serious problem for Medicare, but it's not the biggest problem. And there's always going to be Medicare fraud, I think. So we can certainly try to weed it out, but it's always going to be a, it's going to be a constant. There are other things that we can do to start bringing Medicare spending down. And I believe improve care. Make sure that patients get care that they really want. And save money while we're doing it. Do you not think that something like a single-payer universal system really addresses the systemic cause, which is a national disgrace in this country, rather than piecemeal like a Band-Aid of shared decision-making? So there are a bunch of pieces to your, to your comment and your question. Um, and one of them is, is, is single, would single payer solve the problem of cost and access and quality of care? Well, it certainly would solve the problem of access. And that is an enormous problem. The Affordable Care Act is going to, to help a lot of that problem, but it's not going to completely get rid of the uninsured problem. And that is an ethical issue. Whether or not we cover all the citizens in this country is an issue of ethics. Of, it's a moral issue. So, yes, single-payer would solve that problem. Would single-payer solve the cost problem and the quality of care problem? No. And Medicare is the perfect example because Medicare is a single-payer system for age class. 
So if we had Medicare for all, we'd still have our cost problem and we'd still have our quality of care problem. So it, it's not as if single payer is this sort of magic bullet to solve everything. And I, um, as much as I don't particularly think that insurance companies add anything, I don't think that they are the fundamental problem. Because surprisingly enough, they often don't make a lot of the decisions. In fact, they exert a remarkably small amount of control over what physicians do in weird ways. They, they make trouble for physicians and all of their rules are a pain in the butt and they, with everybody paying a different amount for different things, the physician has to have all these different fee schedules, that's a pain. But it's remarkable how often insurance companies don't say we won't pay for something, to me like inappropriate care, like inappropriate stents and angioplasty. It's remarkable how often Medicare doesn't say, no, we won't pay for that. So, so single payer, I don't think that wiping out the insurance industry is gonna solve the problem. I don't think single payer is gonna solve the, the quality and cost problem. It, will, it would solve the, the coverage problem, and that is a problem. My name is Donna Wells, and I have a very simple question. When I ask my doctor for a decision aid, is she going to know what I'm talking about? Mm, probably not. <laughs> okay. And that's a good opportunity for you guys to talk to each other and say, you know what, I really want something that, that lays things out for me and helps me really understand. And if your doctor plucks some little rinky-dink thing out of a, that, that the drug company supplied, that's not what you want. A decision aid is balanced, informative, and it's written or displayed or videoed in a way that really helps you walk through not only the information about the procedure, it also helps you understand your values and how your values come into play. My name is David Randall. And when asked uh, for your input on an informed consent decision for something such as elective surgery, is it reasonable to ask not only what are the likely or possible outcomes, and they say, oh, we, it may occur, this could occur, but it hardly ever happens. Is it reasonable to ask well, what are the absolute probabilities? What are the percentages on those in a national basis? And by the way, what are the percentages at this facility? And what are your personal experience facilities for that surgery as a percentage so that one can see whether how they rank in this facility and how they rank compared to national performance? I think this is crucial information. And what astonishes me still, I don't know why I should still be surprised, but I am, is that data on things like hospital safety exist and you can't have it. Data on your own individual physician's rate of error exist, and you can't have it. And I think that because they don't want, the, because the, the hospitals in particular are worried that patients will run the other direction. So I think it's really crucial that at some point we have state level databases that really start making these, the, this information available to patients. So thank you for your question.